Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new web series that the Traveling Geologist team has put together called Geology for Our Future. Here's Megan Z describing this exciting new venture. Geology. It is more than just rock collecting, lava scooping, and map making. It is a field that encompasses a wide variety of topics and world-reaching issues. Geology has helped us advance to the modern living we have today and will no doubt play a key role in our future. From the iron found in your car, to the batteries in your phone and the wind turbines that spin, different aspects of geology can be found all around you. However, many may not know the many ways in which geology can impact their lives. And while fun at times, there are no doubt some difficult yet important conversations to have within this field. So how can geology help inform us about our past mistakes and help us move forward having learned something of value? Geology for Our Future is a new web series that will try and tackle this question. We will talk about the traditional methods of precious metal mining, the various environmental and social implications this industry has had on our world, the different forms of renewable energy, as well as the relationships the mining and energy sectors had with indigenous communities. Our goal is to inform you about the wonderful, exciting, complicated field that is geology and share with all of you a world that we love. You can check out Geology for Our Future on the various Traveling Geologist social media pages. Now, on with our show. Hi everyone, Chris here from the Geology Podcast Network. Have you ever stared out your window and wondered what exciting secrets lay just beneath the surface? Don't let the Kentucky bluegrass and the geraniums fool you. There is exciting geology even in your backyard. In this podcast, we explore the amazing discoveries and geologic events that happened right in someone's backyard. Lava is that one thing that mesmerizes everyone. I would wager there is not a person on the planet who could resist rubbernecking if a lava flow was crossing the other side of the street. However, not all lava flows in the same way. Some lava flows slowly. They look absolutely stationary, while others flow as fast as a rushing river. First off, we need to clarify what is lava and what is not. If it is molten and at the surface, it is lava. If it is molten underground, it is not. Also, things like pyroclastic flows are not lava. These are simply hot ash clouds that become welded into solid rock as they cool. Before going any further, here's a primer on lavas. Very simply, we can think of lava as either being black, gray, or somewhere in between. The end members of the lava color spectrum are basalt and rhyolite. When cooled, basalt is black, whereas rhyolite is gray. The color of these rocks is largely determined by the chemistry of the lava. Basalt has more iron and magnesium and less silicon and aluminium and rhyolite has less iron and magnesium and more silicon and aluminium. The in-betweener is known as andesite. 
and you can guess it sits in the middle with its iron, magnesium, silicon, and aluminium. These lavas sit on a compositional continuum, meaning that if you took a chunk of the Earth's solid mantle and melted it, you'd first get basalt. But if you let that magma cool slowly, the iron and magnesium-rich minerals would crystallize first, making the leftover magma more silicon and aluminium-rich and iron and magnesium-poor. This process continues until most of the iron and magnesium have been used up and all that remains is the silicon, aluminium, along with bits of potassium, calcium, and sodium making up our rhyolite lava. When most people think of lava, they think of basalt, the incandescent hot goo that forms a glassy jet black rock. Basalt is the most common lava on the planet. But it's not because the entire oceanic crust is basalt. Even if you ignore all the basalt erupting underwater in the oceanic crust, basalt is still the most common lava. You find basaltic lava erupting from hotspots like Hawaii and Iceland, but you also find basaltic lava in rift zones and subduction zones. Indeed, these settings also erupt more felsic lavas like andesite and rhyolite, but these tend to be lesser in volume than their basaltic counterparts. For me, basalt is both the most exciting igneous rock and also the most boring. Sorry to my friend Tara, I know that you love basalt. It's boring to me because most of the time the minerals are so small you can't even see them. Occasionally, you get some with big olivine or plagioclase crystals, but for most of the basalts near where I grew up, it was just the most boring black rock you can imagine. However, at the same time, basalt can be extremely exciting. Did y'all see that video a few years ago where there was basalt flowing extremely fast across the road in Hawaii? Or the huge lava fountain that erupted on Iceland in 2014? These visuals are why many of us become geologists. Like I said in the intro, I don't think any of us could just walk past a spectacle like this and not gawk in absolute awe. As an undergrad, I had the opportunity to see lots of basalt on field trips. My petrology professor, Eric Christensen, is a basalt aficionado. Needless to say, I wasn't terribly impressed, and my midterm exam scores attest to this. However, the coolest experience I ever had with basalt was on the island of Sicily on the flanks of Mount Etna. We were on our annual mega field trip, and after reaching the summit of Etna, we took a detour and on the way down to see some recent lava flows that were only about a week or so old. While we were all milling about, a buddy of mine and I wandered towards the flows where steam was still emanating. The temperature was noticeably warmer as we crossed these young lava flows. And then, right at the moment when I caught a sniff of burning rubber, our Italian guide started shouting for us to get off those flows. As we turned to head back, the soles of my boots were noticeably tackier from the heat coming off of these recent flows. It was probably not the smartest thing I've ever done on a field trip, but it was definitely up there with some of the hottest.
During the 2018 eruption on Hawaii, I remember seeing footage of lava flowing down the street into people's backyards, and in, in some cases, even into their swimming pools. And I remember thinking how awesome this was. My wife chided me, saying, how terrible. I hope they have lava insurance. Her scowl deepened when I said, lava insurance? How cool is that? I would love to have lava insurance. I immediately went online and Googled how I could get lava insurance on my Hawaiian vacation home that I will never have. I was greatly disappointed, though, to read on the State Farm website that unless you get the super-duper premium platinum diamond-planted comprehensive insurance policy, you are not covered if your house is melted by lava. And then, adding insult to injury, it even says that most homeowners insurance policies do not cover damage from earthquake, landslide, or mud flow, regardless of whether or not the quake is caused by or causes a volcanic eruption. What gives, State Farm? I thought that you were the good neighbor protecting me from mayhem. So get Allstate. You can save money and be better protected from mayhem like me. Or maybe that was Allstate. Uh, I, I forget. On the other end of the compositional spectrum are rhyolite lavas. Not only are these lavas totally different in composition from the Hawaiian lavas, the way these lavas flow is also totally different. Rhyolite lavas often don't even flow in the typical sense of the word, but just form steep-sided domes, given their extremely high viscosity. Additionally, the rate at which rhyolite lavas flow is extremely slow, with flow rates being only a few meters per hour. Rhyolite lava flows often take the form of what are called whalebacks, that look like the smooth backs of a whale breaching from the floor of the volcanic crater. The United States Geological Survey have been tracking the growth of one such whaleback in the crater of Mount St. Helens following the enormous eruption of 1980. The whaleback grew nearly 400 meters over the course of a few years. Although the growth of a lava dome isn't something you need to worry about outrunning, the collapse of these large rhyolite domes are occasionally followed by explosive eruptions like the one that killed nearly 30,000 people on the Caribbean island of Martinique. The story of the 1902 eruption of Mount Pele on Martinique is a sobering reminder of the unpredictability and unforeseen danger that volcanoes often present. On Martinique, it all started on the sunny morning of April 23, 1902, when several large explosions were heard from the volcano. These eruptions were caused by the interaction of superheated water with the rising magma, known as phreatic eruptions. These minor phreatic eruptions continued to grow until the activity was more intense than had ever been documented by the European colonists. Many of those living on the flanks of the volcanoes fled their farms for the larger cities, including the one called Saint-Pierre. However, Saint-Pierre was directly downwind of the volcano and received ashfalls so heavy that it completely blotted out the sun during the first few days of May. And then, on the 5th of May, a large mudslide came barreling down the mountainside, destroying a sugar mill and killing hundreds of people 
both by the mudslide itself as well as the subsequent tsunamis along the coast as the mudslide hit the ocean. Then on the 8th of May, at 8 o'clock in the morning, an enormous explosion was heard from the volcano. Within a couple of minutes, the entire town of Saint-Pierre was completely wiped out by a pyroclastic flow. It is said that only two people of the city's nearly 29,000 inhabitants survived the eruption. Survivors reported seeing the side of the mountain explode horizontally, followed by a 1,000 degrees Celsius surge cloud that traveled over 160 kilometers an hour, resulting in the complete destruction of the town. A couple of weeks after the eruption, Pele continued to taunt the survivors with additional eruptions that killed another 2,000 rescue workers at the end of May and several hundred more in August. After the last fatal eruption, Pele erected a 300-meter-high rhyolite spine similar to the whalebacks of Mount St. Helens that grew up to 15 meters per day. The locals called this the Needle of Pele. Eventually, this rhyolite dome collapsed into a pile of rubble equivalent in size to the Great Pyramid of Egypt. Next, we come to the weirdest lava of all, carbonatites. Carbonatite is a type of igneous rock that is composed of at least 50% carbonate minerals. In most geologic settings, carbonate is associated with critters living under the sea. But in a few special places, we have lava that is composed mostly of melted sea creatures. Think about that for a moment. You can make a lava from melting limestone. Now, not all carbonatites are formed from the melting of limestone. As various workers have proposed, there are a number of alternative petrogenetic models for carbonatites, but it still blows my mind that some carbonatites are simply melted limestones. As far as I'm aware, there is only one place on the planet where carbonatite lava has ever been witnessed, and that is the Aldoingo Lenge volcano in Tanzania. The rocks coming out of this volcano are unlike any other volcano. Videos of these strange lavas look more like a muddy slurry than a lava, and the carbonatite lava flows just like water, and it's fast. If you've not seen these videos, pause the podcast and Google it. They are incredible. Go ahead. I'll wait. Did you see them? Crazy, right? These lavas are also insanely cold. Well, cold for a lava, that is, with temperatures of only around 500 degrees Celsius or about 950 degrees Fahrenheit. These are the coldest lavas on Earth. Carbonatites are particularly interesting to geologists because they are like the hoarders of the lava family. They contain large concentrations of a wide array of economically important minerals, including lanthanum, europium, neodymium, phosphorus, niobium, tantalum, uranium, thorium, copper, iron, titanium, vanadium, barium, fluorine, and zirconium. I told you they were hoarders, didn't I, right? Carbonatites contain large quantities also of rare earth elements and zircon, vermiculite, and other important economic minerals. So then, 
Before I sign off, I saw a video by the illustrious Hank Green where he asks the question, is liquid water lava? Well, he starts out by arguing that ice is a mineral, which I have no problem with. Using our standard definition of a mineral, water is inorganic, it's homogenous, it is found solid on the surface of the earth, it has a definite crystal structure and is naturally occurring, but then he blows people's minds by saying this means that snowflakes are nothing but tiny rocks falling from the sky. And then the coup de gras. So if ice is a mineral, does that mean that liquid water is lava? Well, no. I contend that first, magma and lava are genetically related. You can't have lava without magma. And given that magma is strictly molten silicate rock within the interior of the crust, and lava is simply the extruded counterpart, then, sorry Hank, no, liquid water is not lava. Let's fight about it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, and even professors. Backyard Geology is a part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologists.